Welcome to the Venture Church Podcast. We strive to lead people to be God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. Our goal is to tear down the walls that have kept people away from church to help them build a relationship with God, our Creator. We are so glad you're tuning in today. We hope and pray that this leads you to Jesus and His path for your life. So, without further ado, here is today's teaching. Today we're talking about a third one. It's pretty, it's pretty hard. It's pretty dangerous. And before we throw that up there, I, I want to tell you what it is and give you a definition to think about. Okay, the word that we're looking at today is greed. Greed can be an enemy of our heart. West, Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines greed as a selfish and excessive desire for more of something. Greed. Greed creates a debt-to-debt relationship that's probably more divisive than any of the rest. And it says this. Greed says, I owe me. I deserve this. It's mine's. I need it in my life. I owe me. And so we work hard for something and I earned all this money. And so it's, it's mine. I owe me. I need more, more, more. I want, I want, I want. And it's become just a hallmark of our society. And the thing of these three is this. We're pretty quick to, to recognize when we have guilt in our life because we feel bad about it. You know, like I got guilt eh, and I need to wrestle with that. And it's pretty obvious when someone has anger in their life because, well, they're an angry person. But greed is one that's interesting because I said it's the most divisive. It's a master of disguise. Greed is one that many of us would say, I don't deal with that. Like, that ain't my thing. I'm not a greedy person. I don't have an issue with greed at all. That doesn't pertain to me. But I think that as we dig into this enemy of the heart today, I think we're going to find out that all of us have probably more than we're aware of. And some of us may even have enough to the point where it's time to try to root it out of our lives. And so let's dive into that a little bit today. In Andy Stanley's book, uh, Enemies of the Heart, he talks about greed and he says it's very difficult sometimes to see greed in your own self, but it's easier to see it in someone else's life. You can probably attest to that, right? And so he gives us a list of some kind of red flags that might indicate that you've got a greed issue. He says that greedy people talk a lot and worry a lot about money. Greedy people. You would think, oh, that's, I thought that was just being conservative. I thought that was just being planning ahead. Just listen to all the red flags. Just see how many of them tick for you. Greedy people are not cheerful givers. Greedy people are reluctant to share. They are poor losers. Interesting, that has nothing to do with money. But they're poor losers. Greedy people quibble over, the in, over insignificant sums of money. You owe me five bucks. Okay, sorry, I'll get it to you. Greedy people often have, often talk as if they have just enough to get by, which is often funny to me when I look at some of the things we have, and then we're like, what do you mean you're barely making ends meet? You have, you know, three cars and a giant house. Like, how are you barely making ends meet? Greedy people, it might be a red flag for you. They often create a culture of secrecy around them, just things that they just want to do all the time and that really don't talk about how they do it. Uh, greedy people won't let you forget what they've done for you. Greedy people are reluctant to express gratitude because greed says, I owe me, so I deserve this. Uh, Greedy people aren't content with what they have. That's a hard one. And greedy people attempt to control people with their money. It's a list of things, maybe some red flags. If you'd like to see a list of that, not so you can show it to someone else, (laughs) but so that you can examine your own heart, I'd be glad to email you that or something this week. Just let me know. Greed isn't about how much money you have. Poor people can be greedy. Middle-class people can be greedy. Rich people can be greedy. Greed is not a financial issue. Greed is a heart issue. And that's why it's an enemy of the heart we got to deal today. Uh, the, the question that comes to my mind immediately when I think about greed and any problem that we have in our life is what causes this? 
Like, how can we notice it? How can we know it's coming? Uh, in his book, Andy Stanley makes a very good case for this, and I, I'm convinced. Many times, most of the time, the cause and the source of greed is actually another emotion, fear. And this is why I'll just read a quote from his book. People with greed lodged in their heart fear that God either can't or won't take care of them. More to the point, they're afraid that God won't take care of them in the fashion or the style that they would like to be cared for. And the gap between what they suspect God might be willing to do and what they want becomes a major source of their anxiety. So is it possible that fear is a factor as you get involved in the conversation about greed? Uh, so we love to look to the Bible for God's most important truths. And we're going to be, um, Andy Stanley's a great author and everything, but I prefer to figure out mostly what Jesus teaches us. And so we're going to go from a, uh, a story that Jesus tells and a teaching time that he has in Luke chapter 12 today. If you've got a Bible, grab it or slide down on your phone and scroll down. We'll be in Luke chapter 12. Luke is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life. And so we can get a lot of information about what Jesus taught and what he did from the book of Luke. And we're going to be in chapter 12, verse 13. Uh, if you don't have a Bible today, we've got some in the lobby. I would encourage you to grab one, take it home with you, but the scripture will be on the screen behind me. Um, and Jesus is in this teaching session, and one of Jesus's main roles in society, once he kind of starts his public ministry, was as a rabbi. Now, the rabbi, which is just a word that means teacher, was a very prominent role in Jewish society, specifically religious people. And they would have a rabbi, a teacher, someone that they would follow, someone that would kind of disciple them and teach them about God's truth and about how they should live their life. And Jesus had gained a major following as a rabbi. Many of the people that were following him had no inkling or thought that he was the son of God or that this was going to be some other you know, type of spiritual thing. They were just like, he's just a really good rabbi. He's a great teacher. I'd love to sit at his feet and listen to him. And so when we hit Luke chapter 12, Jesus is well into this rabbi gig and he's got thousands of people who are coming out to his speaking engagements and listening to the things that he has to say. And so something interesting happens in this setting. Jesus is teaching and a guy speaks up, and I guess he's kind of taking questions from the audience, as I'm sure he would do. And he, he's got uh, beef with his brother, this guy that speaks up. Apparently there had been a death in the family. There was some inheritance that was due. And this dude is upset because he's not getting his piece of the pie. The inheritance situation didn't work out for this guy. So let's, let's listen to how this plays out. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. So someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I love that. You're... You ever work with a third grader? This is like what it sounds like. Would you tell him to invite the inheritance with me? Jesus replied, I love this response, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Time out there. We'll get right to the next verse. But this guy, he seems to have a legitimate case. Like if you have a sibling and they shorted you on inheritance, like it's, it's awkward to bring it up, but like, come on, I think dad wanted me to have that, right? And that's, man, how many family fights have happened because of some mix-up over who was going to get the kitchen table, who was going to get this painting, grandma's favorite, like, you know, tea pitcher. Like, it's like this, these things happen, and, and it separates family. So it seems like a legitimate argument, but this is some, some reasons that uh, culturally we wouldn't jump out and see it immediately, but the people here would probably have been like, dude, why are, you, why are you asking Jesus about this? There's two things that I was able to discover. One is this, because Jesus was a well-known rabbi, and he was, he was very well-known Thousands of people would come out to hear him teach. Um, culturally, people would come to a rabbi to hear about spiritual truths, things about God, his interpretation of scripture. Like that, that's kind of the rabbi role. People did not come to the rabbi to deal with civil disputes. It's not what it was. It wasn't Judge Judy. It wasn't the people's court. Judge Wapner, remember that dude? It was, 
It wasn't, it wasn't that at all. And so for this guy to speak up with some kind of civil disagreement with his brother, I think the people in the audience would have been like, dude, you, this is the wrong place for that. That's inappropriate. Like, why would you ask the rabbi about that? That's not what he does. This is the other thing. That's the first reason. The second reason why this is kind of strange and the reason Jesus says what he says is the Jewish legal system had very clear rules about inheritance. Like, like most places, like laws. There were laws. If this guy had a legitimate case, he could have easily taken it to court and dealt with it with a judge. So I love Jesus' response. He's like, um, I'm sorry, who, who appointed me your inheritance attorney? Like, that's not my job. It's not my role. But he takes this opportunity, and he's going he's gonna to spin it off into a different direction. He says, let me address something else, something I think is going on in your heart. And right there in front of this whole crowd, he teaches this man. So we're going to look at his reply in verse 15. He says, watch out. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And life doesn't consist of in, in abundance of possessions. Watch out. As Jesus answers this guy's question about the inheritance, he kind of brushes off the whole legal dispute. And he says, listen, let me get to something that might be at the core of a lot of our hearts. You need to watch out. Watch out. Uh, one of my favorite Bible scholars, um, Dr. Mark Moore, he gives this definition for the word used for greed here. And it's one worth noting. He says, a literal rendering of the word greed here is this, wanting moorishness. Wanting moorishness. That's kind of like this weird uh, verbal tense thing that's happening with this word greed. Wanting moorishness. You got to watch out for this wanting moorishness. And another uh, Bible scholar that I like to read, Robert Stein, he says this, greed is an insatiable desire and lust for more and more. It's wanting moorishness. It's this state of like, I don't have enough. I just need some more. I just need a little bit more. I just need a little bit more. What does Jesus say about that? Watch out. We say watch out about things. Like it's a common phrase that we would use. You would watch out if you're crossing a busy road and you see that your friend is about to step out in front of a bus. You go, watch out. And you grab the back of their shirt and yank them back. Why? They're in danger. If you're at a baseball game and somebody clips a baseball, you know, foul ball over into your stands and some dude's not paying attention. Yo, heads up. What does that mean? Watch out. Why? You about to get hit in the head with a baseball. When we say watch out, what we're saying is something dangerous is on its way. You need to look out for it. You need to prepare yourself for not getting hit by the baseball, for not getting hit by the bus. And it's really interesting that Jesus uses this warning about what? Greed. He's like, you got to watch out. It'll mess you up. In other words, I have a dangerous thing that is approaching me, and I need to be on my guard. And Jesus gives this final like kind of tag to it. He says, life does not consist in abundance of possessions. That sentence is kind of like a weird phrase sentence, but you following what he's saying? Like life is not about stuff. Not about stuff. And we know that. I think we know that. As a general rule, we know that. When there's some sort of tragedy, like the hurricanes that just came through, or if someone just narrowly avoids a really bad car accident, or maybe you are in a bad car accident, but like no one's hurt, we're constantly like, well, the only thing that matters is that you're okay. The only thing that matters is that we survived. And we, we kind of understand that life is not about stuff, but do we really? Because what about the times when it's not like dire, there's a hurricane or there's a car accident? Like how much of this want moreishness lives inside of our heart? I think more often our actions say something else. I think that many people believe that, large, that life is largely about the sum collection of the things that we have. 
what do we spend the majority of our time doing in this life? Working. Why? Does anybody know the answer to that question? Like, why? I mean, I'm not, I'm not even, like, not, just, why do we, why do we work so much? Why do we need an 80-hour work week, 60-hour work week? Why even a 40-hour? There was a point where someone standardized it, and it's like, it's 40 hours. Why? And, and, and what's happened, at least in America, is because, well, there's a standard of living that I would like to live up to, and it takes at least 40 to 60 hours a week for me to earn enough money to upkeep that standard of living. 24 hours in the day, and sometimes we send 10 or 12 of them working at a job that we hate with people that we don't like, creating products that we don't use. And it's really interesting that that's become our culture. And so I'm not digging in anybody's heart right now. Really, this whole thing is about each one of us digging into our own hearts. Believe me, I've done some digging this week myself, and I'll continue. I want to encourage you to ask this question. What part of our life is consumed with wanting moreishness, needing something that maybe we could live without? Every one of us could live on less. Every one of us. And then have less stress and more margin to enjoy the better parts of life, which is people, experiences, doing things. And you don't have to spend a lot of money to have great experiences. You can have them right in your yard with your family, walk to the beach. It's free, except during the summer, the parking's kind of expensive. But, you know, we can do some of this life without the wanting moorishness part, but it gets in us, doesn't it? And it kind of holds us captive, and it starts to control us. Next, Jesus launches into this story because so often Jesus uses these parables to teach his point. So let's just jump into it in verse 16. He told them this parable. He said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. It's a pretty cool situation. The, the original audience would have really loved this part because, man, good for that guy. He had an abundant harvest. Uh, this would be, I got a Christmas bonus for us. This would be, you know, I got, I got, someone gave me something new that I wasn't expecting. I had an abundant harvest. I had something that I wasn't expecting, and it's really good. And so this guy has a problem. It's a good problem to have, but he didn't even have enough room to store all of the harvest. And in an agricultural society, that's, that's, Wow. I mean, because you're relying on the weather, you're relying on the soil, you're relying on so many different factors. Did the uh, seeds get enough water? Is it going to grow? Did I do the right things to keep these plants alive? But at the end of the harvest season, boom, had more than enough, more than I needed. And he has this good problem. I don't have enough room to store the abundance. Now, Jesus, uh, this is Jesus' story, and he's going to make a point here. His point is to say, God provided this man with extra. In fact, if you look at the, the language there, it said the man's soil produced an abundant harvest. It's kind of an interesting phrasing there, and I think it's intentional. Not like the man was just like, I'm just such a good farmer. I got the green thumb. I got green pointer fingers, green pinkies. Everything's green. Green toes. Like the soil produced an abundant. When it comes to particularly to agriculture, how much are we reliant on weather, you know? How much are we reliant on which the, the natural forces that God set into motion? How much are we reliant on just hoping that there's enough rain or not too much, right? And so, but, so this is the point that Jesus is getting to. I want to kind of front load our minds with that thought because this guy says, I have more than I need. And my problem is I don't have anywhere to put it. Where do I store my crops? time out on this story. And I just want to, I want to ask us a question. And this is a question that I think every one of us can ask, whether you see yourself as poor, middle-class, rich, or somewhere in between. This is the question that I think if we ask this question and wrestle with it, especially at this time of buying and receiving gifts and that kind of stuff, this prayer, Lord, what do you want me to do with the extra? 
What do you want me to do with the extra? Because I think if we're honest, all of us have been blessed with probably a little bit more than enough, an abundant crop. So this guy wrestles with that question. What do you want me to do with the extra? All right, so let's see what he does. Verse 18. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. I got it. Bigger barns. That's the solution. And look, I don't want to just throw this guy under the bus. I think it's a brilliant solution. We got too much grain. We don't want it to go to waste. Let's build a bigger barn. But this guy has a condition. It's a very serious condition. It's called BBS. Are you familiar with it? Bigger barn syndrome. Yeah, it's a situation in which you're just constantly looking for a bigger barn. And, and obviously, Jesus is making a point here. He's not just trying to rag on this imaginary character in his story. He's making a point. So let's not just like try to give this guy a pass. Jesus is making a point. This guy's been blessed with abundance. And what's his solution? Build bigger barns. It takes care of everything. Uh, I think BBS is, is a real condition. Bigger barn syndrome. It's not like really medically diagnosed, but I did some Googling this week. And I Googled simple thing. Storage units. Wilmington, North Carolina. There are a lot of them. I counted 22, but I think that's just 22 businesses and multiple sites of some of the businesses. Okay, maybe you don't have a storage unit. Uh, I looked up some other statistics. Uh, Wilmington has a population right now, according to a recent uh, estimate, about 115,000 people. More or less. I don't know. I didn't count myself. How many of those households do you think have at least two closets that are full? How many of those houses do you think have at least also an attic, and or a garage slash storage shed. How many of those homes also built an additional storage shed to put the stuff in that they don't use? And we also have all these storage units in Wilmington. I think we might have a little bit of the bigger barn syndrome situation happening. And this is uh, the American dream, right? This is what we work 60 hours a week for. This is why... But how often do you have something in your house that you haven't touched or seen in like six years? And it's like, oh, I forgot we had this. And what do you do? Let's put it back in storage. <laughs> you know, you're paying rent for that thing. You're paying mortgage for that thing to live there. It's a roommate. Uh, I've got it myself. Uh, I'm a guitar player. I'm a musician. I have seven guitars. I have two hands. What do you collect? What do you have? What do you need a bigger barn for? And Jesus is going through this story. After this guy announces that he's going to build bigger barns, he explains his why. We all have a why. He says this, and I'll say to myself, well, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. So we justify all of our stuff. And this guy's justification is, is reasonable. I mean, I've got a, an IRA. I plan to retire one day, and I hope to have some money where I don't have to continue to work. Like, that'd be great. I think it's okay, and there's plenty of teaching in Scripture that teaches us about planning for the future and being wise and saving and that kind of stuff. But in this particular story, it's just justifying a bigger barn. Why? Well, because if I do, I have plenty of grain laid up for many, many years. There are people in our world, maybe in this room, who have enough savings saved up right now that they could live a modest life for the rest of their life, yet still continue to work, 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 spend, 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 debt, debt, debt. And we continue, continue, continue. And so Jesus steps up to the very beginning and he says, watch out, watch out, because greed's coming and it's going to lodge itself in your heart and you're going to find yourself wanting more, 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 wanting more-ishness, greed. 
Verse 21, Jesus says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Jesus, we've heard a couple definitions for greed. We heard one from Merriam-Webster. We heard a couple of one. We heard wanting moorishness. Greed has a debt-to-debtor relationship which says, I deserve this. I owe me. And Jesus gives this concise definition. A person who stores up things for himself but isn't rich towards God is greedy because it's all about me. In fact, if you go through all of the vices that God warns us against, the typical uh, common denominator is it's something that benefits me and no one else. That's what we find in all of the things that end up hurting us in our life. And Jesus says, I want you to watch out for that because it will hurt you. Not because he's trying to get rich. If you know Jesus' story, he lived like a homeless person. He said to his disciples, the son of man does not have a, uh, a place to lay his head at night. He wasn't taking up an offering plate. You see churches, and, and, and you, you guys have, if you've been here long, you know that one thing, that when I talk about money, I'm like, look, I know people hate hearing a preacher talk about money. They hear churches talking about money. Because you may have been to a church. I've, I've heard of them, and I've been to them where it's like, hey, listen, we're not going to like close service until we raise enough money today. And like, so money has left a really bad taste in people's mouth. But Jesus talks about our, our relationship with our material possessions more than any other topic. Why? Because he knows it will lodge itself on our heart and prevent us from dedicating our full self to him. In another place, Jesus says this. This is Matthew 6, 19 through 21. He said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Isn't that why we have nationwide? <laughs> we got insurance for that. If someone takes our stuff, if it gets messed up. And again, that's, there's wisdom in that, but there's a warning here. But he says in verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we're talking about the spiritual heart and the fact that it can get just clogged up with mess. It's just going to keep our relationship with God from getting strong and it will put barriers up between us and other people in this world that we can love. You know, when we don't have enough, we wonder, why? And so often there's this like scene that plays out where we're kind of shaking our fist at God. You know, and maybe, maybe you're not there. Maybe you have been. You're like, why, why does everybody else have this and I don't have that? Or why are we struggling to make ends meet again this month? Or why is this? And why did I lose my job? And why, why, why? And so when we don't have enough, we find ourselves quickly asking God, why? But what do we ask God when we have more than enough? I think that often we don't ask him anything. We never ask him, what would you have me do with what, my extra? Instead, we go, <laughs> I need a new iPhone. That's what I need. I need a bigger barn. I need a new car. I need another guitar. I need another thing in my life because, man, you know what? There's a little extra room in this closet. What if we started asking ourselves when we see the extra? Not even, not even Lord, what would you have me do with it? But where did it come from? Who... Who blessed us with the skills to do the job that we have? Who lined up the sequences in our life that led us to the place that we are? Now, I recognize not all of us are on the same page with God right now. You might be in a place where you're kind of seeking or questioning or wondering, but you are here this morning, which means I think, I think that you're open to at least hear someone's opinion. And I'm the guy with the little microphone in my face. So I'll share what I think is God's thought for us on that. And it's this. It came from God, 
Like he created us with unique giftings and unique passions and, and the things that you've been, even the jobs that we have are like a, they're a blessing from God. And you know that if you've ever lost a job, man, what a blessing it was to have it. You don't have to have extra to be greedy either. The thing we really get into is like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not greedy because man, I'm just barely making ends meet. But remember, greed is not a financial issue. I, I could talk about our time, how we're greedy with our time. I could talk about our skills, how we're greedy with our skills. You know, I make money to do this, but over here, man, they're, they're asking me to do something pro bono. I'm not sure I want to offer that skill. We could be greedy with a lot of things. It's a heart condition. I read a story about a Christian financial counselor. His name's Ron Blue. Uh, he supports a missionary organization in um, a really poor part of Africa. And, and one time he was asked, he was with some of the missionaries that, that were living there. He's visiting the missionaries. And he just said, uh, what is the greatest barrier among these people that you're serving from reaching them with the gospel? Like, what is the biggest barrier? As you try to tell them about Jesus, what's the biggest barrier between them and God? And the missionary, without blinking, he said, materialism. This is crazy because this is a third world country. This is a place where people have nothing. And, the, and, and uh, this guy, Ron Blue, was confused. I mean, how can people with nothing have materialism? Like, how is that even possible? And so the missionary replied, this is a guy who's lived on the ground for a long time and he's learning about these things. He said, listen, if a man has a manure hut, he wants a mud hut. And if he has a mud hut, he wants a stone hut. And if the hut has a thatched roof, he wants a tin roof. And if he has one cow, he wants two cows. It's, it's scalable, Right? No matter where we are in this life, it's a heart condition. It's a thing going, man, I just need more. It's want, wanting moreishness. King Solomon from uh, the Old Testament of the Bible, he's one of the richest men to ever live. Some of his estimates of his wealth say that, I read an article this week that said Bill Gates would mow this guy's grass. Like that's how, that's how rich King Solomon was, even by today's standards. He was just filthy, rich, and wealthy. And in all that process, he's on this huge journey. If you read his book that he wrote, Ecclesiastes, he's on this journey for finding meaning in life. And he has everything. He's a king. He's filthy rich. He also is very wise and can make some really good decisions. Scripture calls him the wisest man to ever live. He's got all these resources. And in that process, he's trying to find meaning in life. And this is one thing he says about wealth. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Which is like Solomon's favorite phrase. He got through all these different experiments. And he's like, none of this stuff really adds meaning to my life because I'm still wanting more. And so greed is an enemy to our heart. And it can be present no matter how many barns you have or if you're just trying to scrape together enough money to pay the light bill this week. Greed is a heart condition. And we teach it to our children. By right now, you know, the average 12, 13, 14-year-old has a brand new iPhone that they didn't work for. And you know, I, I love giving good gifts, gifts to our children. It's, it's fantastic. But we, we teach to our kids that, what is it? You deserve this. Greed says, I owe me. Actually, what it says right now is, dad owes me. <laughs> I got a crack in my phone. Well, why'd you drop it on the concrete? <laughs> and then we continue that mindset by doing things all the time. We finance houses that we can't afford and we, we got cars that are so upside down in debt that it, we will never pay them off unless we just stop. But we just continue, continue, continue. We fool ourselves uh, by using imaginary money that the credit card companies give us to borrow 
Did you know that right now in 2018, the average credit card debt uh, for a credit card holder is $6,000? That's average. That means there's a lot of people who have none. There's a lot of people who have way more. That's $6,000, 3% higher than this time last year. And it's probably because the average credit card interest in 2018 was 16.71%. You're just chasing your tail if you're just paying the minimum. We lie to ourselves. Guys, let me give you some advice someone gave me one time. Never let the bank tell you how much you can afford to pay for a mortgage. It's their job to sell you a loan. Like they, of course they think you can afford it, but they don't know that your, your kidneys braces and that your car broke down the other day. And they, We need to be much better stewards of the resources God has given us. And when we step in this place and we create this cycle where we're constantly saying, I deserve this. I owe me. We live in the cycle of wanting Moorishness. We got a greed problem, okay? And so I, let's get out of that, okay? I, I wanted to really establish it because at the very beginning, I think if I'd have asked all of us, how many of you feel like greedy people? I think we'd all say, well, I mean, yeah, a little bit, not, not a lot. But I think it's our best interest to purge our hearts of all these things that can separate us from God. And so what's the solution? What do we do? Um, Two, two, I'm going to say, quote, unquote, simple things. They're going to take work for different ones of us to, to kind of purge this stuff from our heart. Um, Every week we have looked at a, a, uh, a godly quality that can attack the enemy of our heart, okay? And so uh, with anger, for example, last week we said the, the prescription for anger is forgiveness. Um, the pre- prescription the first week for guilt is confession. The prescription this week for greed, greed is conquered by generosity. Greed is conquered by generosity. No matter how you slice it, Generous giving, whether it's our money or our time or our skills or whatever it is we have, generous giving will destroy the grip that greed has on our heart because we take away its power, which is, I owe me. I deserve this. And we start saying, no, maybe someone else could use this. I don't need a bigger barn. What I need is more friends that I can share with. (laughs) Generosity breaks the grip of greed on our hearts. Um, Generosity is about honoring God and helping other people. It's kind of a, a working definition I've been playing with this week. I'm talking about giving to a point that it affects my heart. Um, maybe you've had the little prick of, uh, it maybe comes from guilt or something. I don't know. When we drive and we see someone that's like got the cardboard sign on the side of the road or just a friend that needs something and you, like, you slip them five bucks. I, I want to tell you something. For most of us, one or two times a year slipping somebody five bucks, I just got to tell you, that's not called being generous. It's nice. It's nice. Don't stop doing it. Generosity is something that affects our heart. Something that we are getting to a point where we're saying, you know, it's actually a little bit uncomfortable to continue giving this away. But we find that on the other side of that giving away, we're like, I didn't need that. (laughs) I thought I needed that, but I gave it away. And it turns out I actually didn't need it to the point where we adjust our lifestyles. And now here, check this out. No longer am I depending on my wealth or my possessions, my material things for my survival, I'm not depending on that anymore because I'm willing to let it go. And I am letting it go. Instead, I'm depending on God, the provider of all things. And that's a big shift in the heart. And it's a big shift in our minds to start looking at the things we go and not as I deserve this, I owe me, but God gave me this. 
How can I put this to use in his kingdom, in his world, to people who are in need? And to a point where we start to rely on God and not money. God, not my job. God, not my skill set. God, not the stuff I have in my house to keep me secure. And suddenly that piece of fear that leads to the greed has no power anymore either. Generosity destroys the power of greed in our lives. And there's two ways we can, we can kind of be generous. And I just want to kind of skim over them the best I can with the time we got left. But I think they're going to be powerful. And the first one is this intentional generosity, intentional generosity. Um, so you can accidentally be generous sometimes, or you might be, you ever been somewhere and like someone brought you like two orders of French fries? And you're like, I mean, you want these? I mean, again, that's not generosity. That's nice of you, but it's not really deeply generous. Intentional generosity means before I even have the opportunity to give, I've already decided that if this opportunity arrives, I'm going to have a plan. And so there's a lot of different ways we can like, address this. The one that we see most prominently in the Bible is a percentage-based intentional generosity. Percentage. So when you look back in the Old Testament, the Jewish law actually required faithful Jewish people to set aside 10% of their income to put to work, uh, to support the, the priests and, and the temple. That was the purpose of it. It took care of those people so they could devote their entire life to serving the people and doing all that stuff. It got corrupt. It was crazy eventually, but still, that was God's plan. Why did he do percentage base? Because everybody can do percentage base. Poor people can do percentage base. Middle-class people can do percentage base. Rich people can do percentage base. It's a percentage base thing. And his percentage that he required them to do was 10%. Uh, the word for that, and it actually it literally means 10th, is tithe. And so you might hear us sometimes talking at church. If you have tithes and offerings, you put in the offering bucket. Like that's, that's what the tithe is. It's a, it's a tenth of the income. And it's a percentage-based giving. Now, admittedly, the New Testament doesn't like demand this of Christians. Jesus never comes by and says, listen, you have to give a tenth of your offering to the church or to kingdom work or to missionaries. He doesn't specifically say that. However, being intentional, there's passages that say things like this. You should do what you've prepared in your heart to do. Not just like you see an opportunity to give, the lady's ringing the bell outside of Walmart, and you're like, what have I got? I got some change. Blink. And that's the way we do like giving towards missionaries and churches and Christian nonprofits and things like that. We, we give when it's like, oh yeah, I got, a, I got five bucks. Intentional says, before I have the opportunity to give, I've decided where? In my pocketbook? No. In my heart. That I can let this go. And, and I want to encourage you to do this. Um, decide on a percentage, percentage of your income that you want to give away. And I'm going to say something that a lot of preachers don't say. Don't feel like you have to give it here. Because this is a heart thing. Now, do, I, I would love, I believe in what our church is doing in this city. Uh, I believe in the ministry that we're able to provide to the people, uh, people in this room, people who are not even in this room. I would love to see Venture Church be a ministry that you support with your intentional giving. But that's, this, that's not what that's about. It's about your heart towards God. Can I decide in advance? So maybe you got baggage about church and giving and sharing, like, don't let that baggage keep you from understanding God's plan for your, your finances. Instead of building bigger barns, let's be generous and don't let the church get in the way. Maybe, maybe you don't trust the church. I hope that that can change. I hope that we can be a community that builds that trust. We're very transparent with how we do our finances. Uh, I'm the preacher. I don't touch our money. We have a finance team that they manage it and I don't see who gives what and I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't want that to affect anything about the relationships I have with the people at this church. But I do want your heart to be free, to be fully given to God. And I, I do want us to take Jesus' watch out warning seriously. So maybe 10% freaks you out. Guess what else you can do? 
a different percentage. 1% is still a percent. It's still intentional. It's still on purpose. It might be for you that percentage is scary, but I'm going to pick a number and you just pray about it. Talk to your spouse about it. Talk to your trusted friends about it. Like, this is my number. And that's the number you're going to get. And decide something in the kingdom of God that you want to support generously. Maybe it's a family that you know of that's in great need. And they've lost work or they've, they, they've had catastrophe because of the storm. Scripture says that God loves a cheerful giver. He says, don't give under compulsion or begrudgingly, but because your heart is ah, light. And here's the thing that begins to happen. When we do that, we start to recognize the source of our wealth. I love that in this story, Jesus says, um, the ground of this farmer produced an abundant crop. God is the source of all of our wealth, whether it's our money or our other material things or our skills or our ability to have time to do things. But can we be generous with it? Watch out. Wanting moorishness will drag you down and it will take you away from the things that God has in your life. Um, if you would like a list of some missionaries or some local Christian nonprofits that you could be generous towards, please come see me. Please come let me know because I would love to give you the opportunity to enrich that, that ministry and the opportunity for you to dig out that enemy of your heart if it's in there. Uh, the other thing is this, and I really hesitate to say it. Um, for um, As the preacher, I want you to know that's something that my, my family's committed to. And I don't talk about my personal finances because it's, it's uncomfortable and it's uh, like a taboo. But when my wife and I first got married over 15 years ago, we committed to this. And at the time, we were making something like $13,000 a year combined. Um, that was before bills. Um, and uh, so, but we said, you know, it's a percentage base. We want to trust God in this. I'm, I want to speak a testimony to you. And I could talk for another hour and a half about this particular testimony. I won't, so don't worry. But man, we have never gone without. The other day, I was complaining about something. Um, oh, my truck. If you know my truck, you know I'm... I love my truck and I hate it. We have a love-hate relationship. I was wrestling with something. I was like, oh, I'm frustrated. And, and my wife said, babe, we got everything we need. I just wanted to go out and get a new car, you know? We, to make these decisions that we've had to make some lifestyle changes, and I would encourage you to consider them too. I mean, it means we don't just eat out every single time we're hungry. We only eat out what's in our little eat-out envelope cash thing. And yes, it's weird because that's not culturally what people do. We don't use credit cards unless we can pay them off at the end of the, the billing you know, month, cycle, whatever. Um, we, we, we make these, these decisions, and we do it on one income. Um, my wife is a registered nurse. There's not a shortage for jobs, but we have some other priorities in our life right now we're working on. And one thing we wanted to do was have more, her have more time to be with the kids. She homeschools our kids. You don't have to live your life the way I'm living it. I'm just letting you know. I, I'm not sitting up here just throwing stuff at people. Um, it's a sacrifice. But on the other end of it, Oh, man, it's a blessed life. And I found this. The more that you can live with margin in your life, the more that you can get over when you make mistakes financially. Lindsay and I haven't always made the best financial decisions. We've gotten things we shouldn't have gotten. We've had taken on payments we shouldn't have taken. But because we were able to have a little bit more margin, it doesn't hurt as bad. And you can recover from it. 
please let me encourage you. Don't just hear this as a church, a, a, a sermon about like giving and walk away thinking, all right, well, I hope there's better offerings at the church next week. No, this is, this is about your life and your relationship with God and your relationship with how much you work and how tired and stressed out you are and how you relate with other people and how you don't have barriers between you and God in your life. That's what this is about. And so I, I just want you to know it's something that I'm daily wrestling with in my life as well. Um, but another thing I want you to know is this. Our church family routinely has made this a priority. Our finance team, early on in faith, and we're a church that is actually supported by other churches. Uh, we, we moved here kind of as missionaries to start a new church. Our church is only five years old. So we don't pay our own bills all the way, Venture Church, just so you know. Uh, but check this out. In the last five years, our local church family has gotten to a point where you guys support the ministry and the operations of Venture Church, 81% of it with your local offerings. That is huge for a new church. And so less and less we're having to rely on the generosity of other people, and more and more we're relying. I know that we have a church family of generous hearts, and I want to thank you from the finance team, from our elders, from our staff, that wow, this is amazing. But we want to be in a leadership that also practices what we preach, and so our finance team commits at least 10% of our local offerings every year to go back out into, right now we're investing it, investing it mainly in church planting. We were a church plant to begin with. We still are, and we believe that church planting is one of the best ways to reach people who don't know Jesus with this message. Brand new churches. It's, it's, there's brand new churches all over the place in Wilmington, and there's a reason for that, because it works to share the message of Jesus. And our church, check this out, guys. This blew me away. I didn't know how much money we had invested in church planting in the last five years, so I had to ask. In the last five years, our small little church family, look around, like we're not even packed out in this little theater, okay? Our church family has invested over $40,000 in church planting. Some of them right up the street up in Jacksonville, uh, down the road in Hickory. We were involved financially with one of those through a group that we work with. Uh, wow, amazing. I look at that and go, if, if you'd have told me the day we started our church, hey, listen, in the first five years, you guys need to give away $40,000, I'd be like, I'm not sure we will ever will have that much money. So, but God has blessed us through generous hearts, and we want to continue that mindset. But in addition to that, we also intentionally, this is something that the finance team says, we need to trust God, not our finances. So you might remember once a year in February, we take an entire week's offering, and we drum it up, and we say we want that offering to be the biggest offering we give away every year. We give away that week's offering. Uh, right now, we've been giving away to a new church plant in Jacksonville, Restore Church. And what's crazy is our church has become one of their largest givers to support what they're doing. We're 81% self-supported. We're still figuring out how to take care of ourselves. But we want to be a place where generosity is a hallmark of what we do. Can I encourage you? Watch out. Don't let that miss get in your heart and in your mind because God has a plan for taking care of you but you've got to trust him. I said the first way that we can uh, focus on this greed thing and get it out is through intentional generosity. The second one is very short, and I won't spend any time on it at all hardly, but the second one is this, being spontaneously generous. I told you earlier that like, you know, you get five bucks to somebody, I'm not sure that that's generous, that's just really nice, but check this out. Once you've created a lot of margin in your life, once you've made the decisions to be intentionally generous, when these spontaneous generosity things pop up, it's coming from a place of, heart, not a place of guilt or just obligation or awkwardness like, well, she is ringing the bell and I am the only one walking in, so I guess I'll drop in some change. Like, it's like, no, like this is coming from somewhere deep down inside of me and we can feel real good about that. 
We can become spontaneously generous and have opportunities all over the place, which is why as a church, when we've had needs come up among people in our church who just have needs and they can come to our leadership and say, these are the needs we have. We say, you know what? We've got a place in our heart for being intentionally generous. And so we know the value of being spontaneously generous. And we've been able to plan for that. You can plan for being spontaneously generous. You can. You can say, you know what? I'm going to commit 10 hours a week to volunteering somewhere. You don't even know where, but then when the need comes up, hey, man, we just need a babysitter so we can go do this thing. Oh, you know what? I set aside 10 hours this week. I'm going to spontaneously just do that thing. It's a heart thing. So, speaking of which, my wife made these cinnamon rolls. Anybody want one? See, the thing about giving away is that when you, some of y'all are like, man, I didn't sit close enough to the front. I really should rethink my seat. The thing about giving away is you realize you don't, you don't need it. Does anybody need a cinnamon roll? <laughs> but it's a gift. It's a blessing. What I'm going to do is leave this on the table and invite people to come up afterwards and just grab a cinnamon roll. Not during communion. That'd be weird. <laughs> but guys, because we have, we've, tackled, we've tackled what might be the heaviest enemy of the heart. And I said, it's a master disguise. And we just don't talk about it. We just don't talk about it. And I want to be a place where we can talk about the hard things and still walk out loving each other. Let me pray for us this morning. God, I love you so much. And uh, as you uh, just laid these, these thoughts on our minds, Lord, I pray that you give us the heart to be intentionally generous. We talked a lot about money, but there's so many other ways we can be generous. There's so many methods, but it's all about our heart. Lord, we fight against the enemy of greed and ask you that you just, uh, just kick it out of our lives. Make us, uh, make us aware that it will hurt us. It will damage our relationships. It will hurt our ability to connect with you. Lord, you have provided for Venture Church, and I thank you for that. I thank you so much for the ability that we've had to do the ministry that we've done, to be involved in international missions in Papua New Guinea and in missions right up the street in Jacksonville and in other places, um, also doing what we do weekly here. It's just a beautiful thing, and I just pray that you allow us to continue to do that, and we know that the material things, these lights and speakers and TVs and uh, the staff that we have and the facility that we rent and all these things, they, they're gifts from you. They're gifts from you. And we don't need a bigger barn. We just need an open heart. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.